I'm excited about teaching you more about the remarkable life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, last week we learned about how Mary anointed the Lord with about $40,000 worth of perfume. And everybody was like, oh, what a waste. It's never a waste to give too much to the Lord, amen? You know, when, let me ask you, those of you who drive in from Dickinson and San Fe, is Jesus worth it? Amen. Uh, Ashley and Chris, you guys all, all the way from Sugarland, is Jesus worth it? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, uh, I can tell... Ryan, you probably hadn't slept. <laughs> you worked last night. You look tired. It was, it was, and there's so many Sundays Ryan comes and he's had two hours of sleep and he sits here. Is Jesus worth it? Amen. Amen. He is worth it. He's worth our time and attention. I'm also excited because our scripture reader this morning is Pastor Stan Byers. So come on up here, Pastor Stan. I'm going to let you use this microphone right here. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this man. You know, this merger has just been so beautiful, and it could have went any way, any other direction, but the Lord totally orchestrated this. But you know, the Lord doesn't force us to do things, does he? Uh, a big part of this, the major success of this merger has been this man right here. And I just, I just love this guy. I appreciate you so much. And uh, I'm really enjoying getting to know him because he's just had the best servant's heart through the whole thing. And I just can't commend you this man enough because he, he loves the Lord, he loves the Word of God, and he loves y'all. And what God has done here is nothing less than miraculous. And I, I just appreciate this man so much. So he's going to read our scripture this morning, and then I'll have you pray for us as well. All right, here we go. Follow along as Pastor Stan reads. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And, it, and the disciples set out and went into the city and found found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at a table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, 
I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father God, we honor you today in more ways than just a few because our hearts are turned now toward you and toward your word. And we ask you to open the eyes of our understanding that we might be enlightened by your spirit in our inner man. We thank you for that. Receive it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Give Pastor Stan a hand. We appreciate you. All right. Anybody have this picture in your house or your grandma's house or relative's house growing up? How many of you had this picture in your house? Okay. And of course, this picture is painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And I appreciate maybe what he was trying to do, but I hate this picture. <laughs> it is so inaccurate in so many ways. And I mean, first of all, they didn't sit at tables like that. They didn't sit upright in chairs like that. They certainly didn't all sit on the same side of the table, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what's wrong with the other side of the table there? I guess so that's the photographer back in Leonardo da Vinci's day could take the picture. Um, they didn't even dress like that. And I think the part that bothers me the most is Jesus didn't look anything like that. If you take off the beard, this, this Jesus looks like a girl. This is like Renaissance Italian men not rugged Jewish men of the Middle East, you know? And again, not trying, I'm not knocking the Lord's Supper. I'm knocking his version of it. Now, if you study Da Vinci's picture, there's actually a lot of math, and there's even, some people think, some hidden messages in the way that he painted the ceiling and the walls and the different things, and even some equations, some codes, and the three windows behind it. Anyway, you get it pretty deep into all the detail, and I appreciate the detail, but I think it's misleading if we think this is what the Lord's Supper look like. It looked nothing like that. The only thing that's probably close to accurate is it was a large room. In fact, I think the room that they, that Jesus met in was even larger than this, and there was a whole lot more people there than Jesus and the 12. But I, I want to walk us through this, and it's interesting, Patrick and I were talking about that you know, we have communion normally on the first Sunday of the month, unless it's a holiday like last week was, it moves the second Sunday. And we didn't have to change anything. The communion now fell on when we're studying the Lord's Supper. So God is sovereign, amen? So, so it's the first day of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was a multi-day festival, that la a feast that lasted for almost a week. And so this is the first day of it, and it overlaps with the biggest holiday of Jewish life, and that was Passover. What's your favorite holiday? Christmas? Yeah. Anybody know what mine is? If you know me really well, you probably have heard me say it before. No, Thanksgiving. Somebody said Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's my, my favorite one because it's family gathered around a meal with one purpose, to thank the Lord for all he's done. It's the one that's the least commercialized. They're trying, but it's the least commercialized. It's the most family-oriented, and it's really the most God-centric, ironically, more than Christmas and Easter can be because it seems to be the least... Uh, flawed with distractions. But this was a big deal. And this overlapped. It's kind of like how Christmas and New Year's fall into that whole holiday season where holidays overlap into a, basically a time of holidays as well and family time. And so they, were, they sacrificed, this was the time they sacrificed the Passover lamb. 
Now, we can't spend enough time thinking about the Passover lamb and what that meant to Jews. Jews were slaves in bondage in Egypt with no hope of ever getting out, being more and more oppressed as they became weaker and weaker and Egypt became more and more powerful as a world-dominant force. And every time that something happened wrong, he would make their labor harder, like give them no straw for bricks. Remember that part of the story? And so they looked like they had no hope until God raised up a man named Moses and used Moses miraculously. And you saw the sequential 10 plagues that each were an attack on an Egyptian deity showing that Jehovah indeed was God and none of these other second-rate gods were even real as he destroyed each and every one of them through all the plagues of the frogs, the Nile, the sun, the cattle, all these things that they worshipped. He showed that I'm in control. And so the heart of the Passover was the Passover lamb. God commanded everybody in the land to take a lamb, spotless and pure lamb, and to slit its throat, to drain out its blood. And what were they to do with the blood? Put it on the doorpost. Remember, all around the door, on the outsides of the door. And then what would happen is when the Lord came through that night, by the way, Exodus doesn't say anything about a death angel. There is another passage that alludes to a death angel, and maybe the two are connected, but the Lord did this, by the way, so don't try to pawn it off on an angel. The Lord did this. What did the Lord do? He killed the firstborn in every house. So in every house, one another scripture says, someone died. It was either a lamb or it was a firstborn child. So you saw a massive casualty of, of children, and even, I believe, adult children. If you were a firstborn adult, you know, and for your family, if you didn't put the blood on the door, you also passed away. I don't think it was just for children. So that Passover lamb, though, it did not atone for sins. Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. Clear. First Corinthians makes that abundantly clear. It was just a shadow, a foreshadow of the Messiah to come, that he would be a spotless lamb without sin and without blemish. And, of course, John the Baptist identified Jesus said so much. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And by that, he's implying the, the Lamb is the Passover Lamb. So at this, at this holiday, when they're sacrificing Passover lambs, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He is about to be sacrificed at the same time. And so they ask the question, where will you have us to go and prepare for us to eat the Passover? So they knew that they were supposed to prepare. And Jesus confirms later, yeah, go do it. Go prepare. They just didn't know where. I wonder if they were implying that Jesus didn't have a plan, but we know that, that Jesus did, and we'll talk more about that plan in a second. Um, so he sent two of his disciples, which was Jesus' practice. It's a good idea to go out two by two for accountability and for a lot of other reasons, but he sent out two of his disciples. We don't know if this was two of the twelve because Jesus had many disciples. There was little d disciples, right? And then there was the disciples, the twelve. So we don't know which of the two he sent. And he said to them, go in, into the city, by statute, the Passover had to be celebrated within city limits of Jerusalem. So they've been hanging out outside city limits in Bethany. He's saying, okay, now go into the city limits, into the city Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to celebrate this Passover. He says, and a man carrying a jar of water. Now, <clears throat> some skeptics look at this and say, oh, what a vague prophecy. A man carrying a jar, jar of water, big deal. Well, no, it actually was a big deal. First of all, I, we don't know whether it was a prophecy or not, or if it was just good planning. We'll talk about that in a second as well. First of all, men didn't carry jars of water. Women did, and slaves did. 
And you can identify both of them by their dress. And so a man walking around carrying a jar of water was not an everyday thing. And so I think Jesus can do whatever he wants, amen? <laughs> and Jesus can do whatever miracle he wants. And maybe this guy just happened on this day carrying a jar of water, and maybe he just happened to have an upper room prepared and had no clue why, and then all of a sudden the disciples say, hey, Jesus wants to use your room. Okay, great. And it, Jesus miraculously planned it all out. But here's what I think. And again, Jesus could have done miracles whenever he wants, but I don't think this one is a miracle. I think this shows excellent planning on Jesus' part. I think Jesus had a, a guy, and this is, like, this is like secret ops going on here, you know, and the guy's going to stand at a corner at a certain time and wait for people to come up to him, and they're going to ask for this, and he's going to know that that's one. I think Jesus planned way in advance, in detail, to have this room ready to go, and just, but because he's trying to lay low, because he's constantly trying to flee being killed too early, right? How many times did they want to kill him and he just slips away or he avoids, you know, Jerusalem and tries to stay away because the, the fervor against him is, is building up, trying to kill him and he doesn't want to be killed before his time, showing that he's in total control. In fact, we learned last week that the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders didn't want that this to happen in the festival week, especially right in the middle of it. And of course, when did it happen? Right in the middle of it, because God's showing he's in control. So I think this was excellent planning on Jesus' part. But if you want to think of it miraculously, you can do that, because Jesus can certainly do whatever he wants. And so he says he will show you a large upper room. This was a very big room. And again, I think it's even bigger than da Vinci's painting, because I think there's a whole lot more people here than just the 12. Um, you know, there was a large crowd that followed Jesus. I, I think that this could be the basic the beginnings of the 120 that we see later at Pentecost, but maybe not that many, but there's a lot of people here. Could have included the disciples' families, we don't know. But you see that the room is furnished and ready. Jesus had a plan ready to go. He had, he had delegated all this for people to take care of it. And this is the way Jesus does things. Of course, I think the disciples, a lot of times they think Jesus didn't know what was going on just because he didn't tell them. And if you've been following the chosen and all, they really flesh this out really well. That the disciples always doubting whether Jesus knows what he's doing. And of course, Jesus shows full well that he knows what he's doing always. And Jesus has something furnished and ready for you, by the way. A plan for your life and what your future is, where you'll be next year. Jesus has it all furnished and ready. And he usually does. He always does. Verse 16 says, and the disciples set out and went into the city and they found it just like he told them. And I think Jesus told him a whole lot more detail than Mark just did. Because Mark, what does Mark do? He just spares you the labor and gives you the baby. Just kind of delivers all these little quick facts. But Jesus probably went into great detail about what will be where and what this guy will have and all the things like that. And it was just like he told them. And then they, there they prepared the Passover. He left that part for them. And when it was evening, that's when you started the celebration of Passover in Jewish timetable the day started at sundown we started at we started in a weird way we started at midnight in the middle of the night nobody's paying attention you could start the day at sunrise that would make sense but what does genesis say it says the evening and the morning were the first day and so where where does your day begin at sundown around the table with your family i think it's god's way of saying what's the most important thing is you having a meal with your family and now Jesus is having the last meal 
with his family and showing how important it is. This is, this is like Thanksgiving on steroids. This is the most amazing time right here. And it's right before Jesus would die. And so it's at evening, the 12, and they were reclining at table. They don't sit in chairs upright. They recline on pillows and things like that. And truly, I said to you, one of you, so the meal has started, okay? We're progressing the meal. And early on, not at the very beginning, but somewhere in the, towards the first third of the meal, Jesus drops a bomb and says, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now, if it was just the 12 around the table, and Jesus says, I'll give you a clue. It's one of you eating with me. Like, well, we're all eating with you, Jesus. <laughs> no. What if there was several tables set up? You know? In fact, he even goes farther. He says, it's the one that I'll dip in the dish with. Well, if there's five tables going on, he's saying it's one who's sitting at this table, not one of the other tables, and someone dipping in this dish, not one of the other dishes. You know? So that's why Jesus is talking this way, and that's why we know there's a, a whole lot more people there. Um, but that's, that's really troubling. You know, there's some people you've known for a long time and you love them dearly. And usually someone that God links your soul with, the more you get to know them, the more you love them. Imagine that with Jesus. I mean, it would be love at first sight, I would think. <laughs> and it would be, and I don't mean that in a romantic sense, but I just think he's so ingratiating. He's so kind He's so thoughtful, and you probably after three months of friendship with him, you're like, okay, what's the real side of this guy? When is the other shoe going to drop? When is he going to show the real him? What's, what's his agenda? Why? You ever had people be nice to you because they want something? What does he really want? And then after six months, you're like, he just wants a relationship with me. He just really loves me. And, and, you, and again, the, the Chosen bears this out really good. I would encourage you to watch it. Just how much they talk about how much they'll miss him when he's gone. And just the deep, loving, kind friendship of Jesus. So three years of this, give or take a few months, and now all of a sudden he says, one of you will betray me. You can imagine how much sadness that brought to the room. It says they began to be sorrowful. And they said to him one after another, is it me? man, I sure hope it's not me. That would be horrible. I love you, Jesus. I'm just, I cannot believe that someone in this room would be doing this. Man, I sure hope it's not me. Is it me? And this really gives evidence to how much of a charlatan Judas was. He had them all faked out. Not one of them had a clue that it was him. In fact, they were so clueless that they thought, man, I love all these guys too. And John, it couldn't be him. He's his best friend. And Peter, Peter walked on water. I know he says stupid things every now and then, but man, look at Peter. He's sold out. And, and James and Andrew and, and Judas, man, he takes care of the money for all of us. And he gives a lot so much to the poor. Who could be? Man, it may be me. And you just think, wow, what would it be like just to, to cut the tension in the air with a knife in that room when Jesus says this? And he says, it is one of the 12. In other words, it's not someone sitting at another table. It's one of the 12. And in fact, it's someone dipping the bread with me. Now, a lot of times people read this wrong. That Again, they're all sitting on one side of the table and they're like, well, who is it, Jesus? It is the one who I dipped the bread in. See, blah, blah, blah. Judas, here you go. You know, <laughs> what does that even mean? That doesn't, that, that doesn't make sense at all. In fact, we have to use Scripture to compare with Scripture. If you go to John 13, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at at one another and are uncertain of whom he spoke. They don't have a clue. And one of his disciples, 
whom Jesus loved. And who is that usually? That's John. Everybody seems to think that John was humble enough to not refer to himself by name. You know, Jesus' best friend, John, he just kept calling him the one whom Jesus loved. He was sitting right next to Jesus at his side. In fact, um, well, let me just keep reading. You'll see. Um, and then it says, so Simon Peter motioned him. said, John, ask him. Ask him. And so who's he, who's he talking about? And, and John's, Peter's motioning with his hands. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, because again, they're all reclining. They're leaning on pillows. He's sitting close enough to Jesus to kind of lean to him. He said, Lord, who, who is it? Not in a loud way where Jesus would go like, hey, everybody, it's Judas, you know. He's, it's a quiet conversation going on over here, and they're kind of speaking in code. And Jesus says to John, not to the whole group, I'm about to dip the bread. And it was a common custom to say, hey, here, you first. You know, they like, they like gravy and porridge and soup, and they dip bread in that and eat it. I love it. That's one of my favorite ways to eat. And, he just, and it was not uncommon to give it to someone else. And so maybe Judas is sitting two over, you know, maybe it's a round table, who knows what. And he's, that's the code that he gives to John, who probably then gives to Peter, because Peter's pushing him into this. And so when he had dipped a morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So, and then he goes on to say, we're back here to Mark 14. For the son of man, which is referencing back to Daniel's major prophecy of the Old Testament. This is the kingly Messiah. That's what son of man means. The kingly Messiah goes as it is written of him. That, that one word goes there means a lot. Basically saying, everything that's happening to me, it's happening to according to scripture. What's happening to me is no problem. I'm not freaking out. This is, this is the way it's supposed to go. And it's a good thing. Everything that goes for me, that the prophecies have written about me, it's going to go to plan and it's all going to be good. But woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It's not going to go good. It's going to be really bad for Judas. And he says it would have been better for that man, Judas, to not even been born. So then the question comes up, well, then why was Judas born? Did God create an evil robot to betray him? No. Judas had a choice. God is sovereign and man has free will. And how those two fit together, this little brain has no idea. But I know that both are totally true. And Judas will burn in hell because Judas chose to sin. Judas chose to betray the Savior. Judas chose to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas even had a chance to repent at the very end. Just like Peter did, who also betrayed Jesus, right? And yet one chose repentance. The other only repented of himself and was sorry. Basically, he got caught and the whole thing blew up. And so every man has a choice, but if we choose wrong, it's better that we not be born. You know, there's a major contrast between Jesus and Judas. Here, Jesus appears to be losing everything, but in the end, he gains it all. And Judas gains 30 pieces of silver, but he loses everything. Here, Jesus is doing the will of his father and sacrificing himself. Here, Judas is doing what his own selfish person wants, and sacrificing others. Quite a contrast between Judas and Jesus. But that's what Mark's all about. Mark is all about contrast. As you see here, in fact, just to suggest, if some of you are really feeling zealous about studying the book of Mark, I would encourage you to go, Matt posts all these sermons on our podcast app, if you like to do podcasts. Um, start back at the beginning of Mark, and just maybe Monday through Friday, listen to five different sermons, and just kept, go back through all of Mark up till now and just see this contrast that Mark gives between insiders 
and outsiders. It, people who appear to be in the, the, the um, thick of religion, to be right in the middle of God's will, but they're absolutely not. And people who appear to be on the outside, like nobody would love them. Nobody would care about them. They don't even deserve anything. And Jesus puts them right in the middle. Let's look at a few of them. Um, just for example, there's the paralyzed man, and then there's the scribes. And they lower the, the paralytic man is literally on the outside, can't even get to Jesus. So what do they do? They lower him through the roof. The scribes who are supposed to be right in the thick of the most religious people, they represent God, they represent God's nation, God's people, and yet they, they're totally on the outside. Quite the contrast. And then we have um, Matthew, the tax collector. Total outsider. Total betrayal to his nation. Totally someone who deserves not to even be looked upon, only to be spat upon, cannot go to synagogue, cannot worship, cannot do anything, totally pushed outside because of he's chosen to betray his nation. And then the Pharisees, who are the ringleaders of it all, and yet Jesus says, nope, I'm going to put him on my inside circle. I'm going to put him in my 12. And you Pharisees, you have no idea what the scriptures even mean. And he reverses the roles there. Um, we also see the demon-possessed man. He was on the outside. He literally had to live outside the town. He lived out in the graveyards. And he's cutting himself, and he's you know, causing all kinds of grief out there. And then there's the villagers who think they've got life made. And, of course, what does he do? The demon-possessed man becomes in his right mind, sits down, says, Hey, Jesus, can I follow you? And the villagers come out of town and say, Jesus, go away. We don't want you here anymore. And so you see that another beautiful contrast there. In Mark chapter 5, you got the lady with the issue of blood. She shouldn't have even been in the crowd. She's supposed to keep a distance from people because she's unclean. And yet she sneaks into the crowd. She touches the tassel of Jesus' hem of his garment, right? And the disciples have no clue what's going on. They're supposed to be right in the thick of things with Jesus. And they're like, well, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Well, you know, we're, we're crowded by a throng of people. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? And they have no clue. But this lady has definitely the greatest clue. Then we have Jairus' daughter. Jairus is the leader of the temple. And his daughter is sick. And Jesus gets to the house and says, she's not dead, which she had died, but he, he means she's not ultimately dead. She's just asleep. And the mourners, who are the paid religious people to be so spiritual that they can fake tears, they have no clue. And he says, get out of the house. Just everybody get out. You skeptics, I don't want, I don't want to talk to you. Mom, dad, come here, let's go. And he raises the daughter. And she's the one who was on the outside through death, but is now on the inside. The mourners who are supposed to be on the inside are now on the outside. You see a pattern Mark is doing here? There's the Syrophoenician woman. She goes to Jesus and says, you know, hey, I'm not one of you, but even the puppies around the table get crumbs from the master's table. And he says, I have never seen such great faith, not even all of Israel. All of Israel is supposed to be expecting a Messiah has no clue that there he is. And this foreigner woman who is an enemy of Israel knows exactly who she is. You got the blind man. And Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees can't even see what's going on in front of their eyes. The blind man now sees. Those who are supposed to see cannot. Then there's the boy with the unclean spirit. Again, people with demon possession were thought to be. It was their fault. It was their problem. They were cast out. And the scribes are supposed to be in the center of religion. And Jesus does a, a, a juxtaposition there as well. Then there's a little child. They, won't let little, they, let, they cheat the little child like an outsider. No, you can't come to Jesus. Jesus is too busy for you. And Jesus says, what? Allow the little kids to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he puts the little child on the inside and tells the disciples, you're on the outside unless you become like this little child here. Then there's the rich young ruler. Everybody thought 
If he is the insider's insider. He's got money, which is a sign of God's blessing. He's young. He's wise beyond his years. He's a leader in the synagogue. Man, he loves Jesus. He is a great bachelor candidate for any woman in our synagogue. He is definitely an insider. And Jesus says, no, you got a big problem. You need to go and sell your little gods. You need to sell up all your idols, all your money, because that's what you worship. And he went away sad because he owned so much. And he went away from the inside to the outside. And blind Bartimaeus, accepts, who has nothing, gets everything in Jesus and becomes an insider. Last week there was Mary worshiping. She worships by giving her this great, uh, valuable family heirloom of precious ointment and pours it all in Jesus. Not just a few drops, but she gives it all to him. And of course Judas, who's supposed to be on the inside, the most trusted disciple to handle the money, and yet he's totally on the outside on what's happening here. He says, she's done this for my burial. You even go to John. He, John likes to do this. There's the woman at the well. She's a total outsider. Her, her pagan foreign community didn't even want her because she was such an adulterous woman. They kicked her out. She had to go in the middle of the heat of the day to draw water because no women wanted to be around her. And yet here's Nicodemus, who is supposed to be the teacher, the preeminent teacher of Israel, and he doesn't have a clue. And this woman of the well is like, you're the Messiah, aren't you? And just this amazing contrast there. So let's look at this, what we've just read about here. The pastor Stan has read for us here. And how Jesus takes this beloved holiday and totally transforms it into what it's supposed to mean and what it's all about. So think about this, your favorite holiday, and Jesus is going to totally turn it upside down. So as they were eating, he took bread. And so this bread, there was four pieces of bread in, the, in that. And so he takes this bread. And of course, a lot of times you see pictures like a loaf of bread. But what kind of bread was it? It's unleavened bread. It did not rise. Okay, It was meant to be flat. In fact, if you, we use matzah bread here like the Jews still use in the Passover. And, and you will see that they will like put it on like some of a grill so it has brown stripes. So it represents Isaiah 53. By his stripes we are healed. You hold up a matzah, you'll see there's holes in it. They stick it through with these like these prong things that they do in the, in the dough. And but, that he was pierced for our transgressions. There's no leaven in it, which is in most cases a type of sin. So it's a perfect picture of the body of Christ. And after blessing it. Now we think in our American mindset that here's this plate of food and we're going to bless it. And all of a sudden now it's chemically changed and it's all of a sudden good for us. You know, when before that it was bad for it because somehow we've said this hocus pocus, alakazam, bless the food. You know, it's not that at all. It's like when the Bible says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Are you pronouncing a blessing upon God in, in a sense that you're changing him? No, you're talking about how great he is and how thankful you are for him. Blessing the food is saying thanks for the food. And of course, the common prayer that Jesus would pray, like all Jews, is blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who gives us bread to eat and wine to drink, or some prayers like that. He would say that. And again, you'll see that bear down the chosen as well. I'm plugging that really hard because <laughs> um, it's building up. So let me, often Jews will call the Passover dinner, the Passover Seder, the order of things, um, the way the dinner goes down, or the Passover menu, if you will. And so there was four cups of wine that were uh, drank at different intervals in the, in the Seder. There was also the unleavened bread 
Unleavened bread was also a sign that it was made in haste. They didn't, have, they didn't have time to add yeast. They didn't have time to wait for it to rise. They had to make it really quickly, and they had to go and flee Egypt. And then there was the bitter herbs were part of the, the Passover Seder. The bitter herbs, they would taste that, and that would be a reminder of how what a bitter experience it was to be a slave in Egypt. And another part on the menu was the Hallel songs. They would pause, and they would sing Psalms 113 and Psalm 114. They had a certain cadence that they sang this by. We don't know exactly what the tune. Sometimes you'll read Psalms. It'll say, according to the Mahilashef, which means it's like this song. Like if I said, let's sing, row, row your boat, but let's sing it according to Yankee Doodle. And so we sing these words to this song. So they all knew what that meant. And they actually sang Psalms 113 through 118, but they'd sing these first two, and then they'd pause, they'd do some more, and they'd sing the rest later. Um, and then this, there was a second cup of wine, and then they, they, each one of them represented, and then they'd have the lamb, okay? So they'd have all these things, and then they'd have the lamb, and then all the other parts would follow later. Um, but what's really super interesting is the lamb is not mentioned in any of the Gospels. Not in Mark, not in Matthew, not in Luke, not in John. It talks about eating bread, drinking wine, singing a hymn, all these elements of the Passover, but never mentions what is the main course of the Passover, the lamb. Now, I don't want to build a tower on silence here, okay? I don't want to be dogmatic about this. But I strongly believe, and this is my, my sanctified speculation, if you will, is that the reason the lamb's not mentioned, that there's no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. I think it's all about him and his sacrifice. And they, I think that when Jesus told this guy to prepare, he told him, just don't worry about the lamb. The guy's like, don't worry about a lamb? No, don't worry about it. Get everything else ready. The disciples will come and get it all fixed up. And I'm sure they're scrambling on the room, going, hey, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? You know, the master said, don't worry about it. And like, okay, I guess he's got a surprise guy delivering or something. Maybe Uber Eats is going to bring us a lamb or something like that. I don't know. But again, can I make a solid case that that's exactly what happened? I don't think so. But even if there was a lamb at the table or on the table, I think that, this, that the other gospels leave it out because the focus is on the lamb of God. So these four cups, this is super important. And I'll, I'll, I'll circle back this so you don't have to memorize this, this slide yet. But there's the cup of sanctification, cup of judgment, cup of redemption, and the cup of consummation. This is what Jews used in these four cups, okay? And, and you watch how the significance of these bears out. Back in Exodus chapter 6, this is where they got the names of these four cups. He says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of, uh, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is the cup of sanctification. What does sanctify means? It means to set apart. Something's in the world, and I'm going to take you up out of the world and set you apart. I'm going to sanctify you as holy. I will bring you out of, the, uh, out of bondage. The second cup is, I will deliver you. See, you're under judgment right now. I'm going to deliver you from judgment, from slavery, and, and I will deliver you from slavery from all of them. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And he says, I will redeem you, how? With an outstretched arm. And then the fourth cup, he says in verse 7, he says, and I will take you. This is like, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Do you take her? 
It means to take as a bride or to take as family. I will take you to be my people and will be your God. God's saying, I am the groom. I'm proposing to you, Israel. Will you marry me? I'm going to take you as my wife. And, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So with each cup, Jesus is showing that he is the greater Moses. See, God used Moses to do all these things. God is saying, I will do all this for you and I will use Moses. And then Moses said towards the end of, when we studied the book of Deuteronomy, he says towards the end that there will be a prophet greater than I. And every prophet that came after that, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, uh, and on and on, they kept thinking, well, maybe he's it, maybe he's it. And none of them lived up to Moses. They were all good, but none of them seemed like as great as Moses. So when Jesus came into the scene, who, does, who do the Pharisees still think is the greatest prophet? Moses. We follow Moses. Who do you follow? You know, and they were all about Moses because at, to that point, he was still the greatest prophet. And so the prophecy of a greater prophet than Moses had not happened yet, but Jesus is showing that he indeed is the greater Moses. Watch what he does here. First of all, he says, I will bring you out. Have you been brought out of the world? Have you been saved? If you've, been, if, you are, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, you have been brought out of the bondage of slavery, out of spiritual Egypt, and been sanctified, set apart, and holy for the master's use. And that's what, God, that's what Jesus said, I'm going to do for you. He's totally transforming the Passover to it's not a historical event about one group of people leaving another group of people, but now he's turning it into, no, I want to bring you, I want to save you, I want to bring you out of the world. And what I want to do for you is I want to deliver you from judgment. You see, the wrath of God is abiding upon you and you're, you deserve hell, but I'm going to take your judgment for you and I'm going to deliver you through me absorbing your judgment. And then he says, and I will redeem you. And see, he He's taking the words of Moses and saying, I'm going to do all this now. And how am I going to redeem you? What does the scripture say? With an outstretched arm. Isn't that amazing? See, Jehovah God reached down into history and reached into the Egyptian people and pulled out a people for him and brought the Israelites out of bondage with an outstretched arm. And then Jesus says, you've got a bigger problem than earthly slavery. You are a slave to sin, and I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. And so that's what Jesus means when he says, this cup, this third cup, this cup of redemption is the, is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to re- this is the cup of redemption. It says, and he took the cup it was the third cup, the cup of redemption. And they're like, we've known since a little kid what this means. This means that God redeemed us with an outstretched arm out of Israel. And he said, no, no. It means something more than that. This cup now means the new covenant in my blood. And it says, and he gave thanks. And the word give thanks, the Greek word is Eucharist. Makes some of us nervous if you're not Catholic, okay? But it's, it's a Bible word, okay? So you can call communion the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's table, you can call it communion, you can call it Eucharist. They're all biblical words. They all apply to the same thing. And when he had given thanks or Eucharist to them, he said, and he said, and they all drank of it. They all participated in this, this beautiful picture of the salvation. And he told them what the third cup means. He said, this is my blood. Here's what this cup means. It means my blood of the covenant. The covenant, the contract that I have, and much more than a contract, because contracts have escape clauses. Covenants don't. Covenants means I'm going to do my part, even if you don't do yours. 
And so Jesus binds that covenant with his blood. And he says, and this, this covenant is my blood, which is poured out for who? For many. So he says, I will bring you. I will deliver you. I'll redeem you. And then he says, I will take you. Remember what the word take means, to take as a bride, okay? The consummation, to be my people. And so usually they drank this fourth cup and they talked about how we are God's people. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't drink this cup. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to drink this fourth cup, the cup of consummation, until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom. When I come as the, gro- the groom to get his bride and take you to be my people. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I'm going to drink this with you, but not till I come again. And I believe Jesus is coming again soon. And I'm looking forward to drinking that cup with him in the kingdom. When we are God's people, when we have the great wedding feast and, God, and Jesus consummates the marriage in the spiritual sense by taking us to be the bride of Christ. And then it gets even more beautiful. And when they had sung a hymn, you should think, well, did they sing Amazing Grace? That's what grandma sung. You know, was it Blessed Assurance, one of those old hymns? No, no, it was, it was the Hallel songs, the hymns, Psalm 113 through 18. We've already sung 13 and 14, and they probably have sung 15 and 16. They probably have sung several. But I, here's what I want you to picture. First of all, how would you like to be in the same room when Jesus is singing? Would that, Lauren, you love music. Would that not be the coolest? I mean, he's leading them. He probably doesn't have a guitar, but he's leading them and he's doing a great job because usually the eldest male in the room would lead, but Jesus, whether he was the oldest or not, didn't matter. He was the leader. So he's leading them in singing this song. Now put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You know that it's only a matter of hours before torture and beatings and mock trials and betrayal of friends all this is coming, okay? And this is all swimming in your head. And yet you're, you are trying to focus on your family here at the greatest family event, Passover, but you're telling them what it really means. And then you stand to sing these songs with your family. And let me just read to you some from Psalm 116. So Jesus, right before he's about to crucify, it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Which is just a matter of hours right now. And then he says, The snares of death have encompassed me or surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol or the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. For you have delivered my soul from death. He's already seen to the other side, the resurrection. My eyes from tears. Did he not cry many tears in the garden, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord. I know I'm going to get through this. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus is foreseeing his own resurrection. He goes on to sing in verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation, this third cup, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows. What did Jesus vow to do? The will of the Father to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Jesus will be crucified publicly And then he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And if God's people dying for him is precious, how much more precious is it that his only son dies for him? And then they sang Psalm 118, which says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isn't that amazing? 
That's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. I came to Israel, my own, and my own received me not. They rejected me. They rejected the chief cornerstone. Actually, let me go back. And it says, and it has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Everything Jesus was about to go through was the Lord's doing. But what? It's marvelous in our eyes. God's plan of redemption is nothing short of a marvel. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See, we can go back to Israel putting blood on the door. And imagine Moses tells you to do this. And you go inside and you look at your firstborn son or your firstborn daughter and think, oh my gosh, I love you. And they're like, daddy, why are you killing a lamb? Because I love you. Because when, when God sees the blood on this door, he's not going to take you. He's not going to take any of us. He's going to see the blood. And imagine you go outside and you're putting the blood on the door and you look over and your neighbor next door, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, are you going to put the blood on the door? No, I ain't doing that superstitious stuff. Jeremiah, please take God seriously. You would want to go tell your neighbor to, hey, put the blood on the door, brother. Man, don't you believe that Jehovah God means what he says, that that this sacrificial lamb, which points to our Messiah, that his blood can cover our sins? Oh no, I'm going to do that later. I don't think this is going to happen. You would beg and plead with your neighbor to please, please take the blood. And, and I'm here this morning saying to you, if you've never put the blood of Christ over the door of your heart, you need to do so today. Because when Jesus Christ comes a second time, there's going to be judgment. And the only way that that judgment is not going to come upon you and your life is because the blood of Jesus Christ is was what you've put your faith in. We need to, Jesus is the greater Messiah. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb. You say, well, Gary, you've been reading into this whole story. No, no, Paul's reading the same thing. He's saying Jesus is our Passover lamb and that he has been sacrificed. And if you trust him today, he will bring you out of the world and he will deliver you from the judgment you deserve. He'll redeem you with his outstretched arms that he sacrificed. And then when he comes again, he will take you to be his bride and to be his people. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again, you will be what? You will be saved. And then Verse 10 says, for with your heart you believe and you're justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. With the heart, with your whole being. Not just an intellectual thing. Oh yeah, I understand Jesus died for our sins. Do you really understand it? Have you really taken that into who you are and that your only hope of salvation is in the blood of Jesus Christ? Like Israel's only hope of salvation was the blood on the door. Is Christ crucified your only hope of salvation? I would like for everyone to pray if you would and just ask the Holy Spirit of God to open hearts and to remove the blinding of, that Satan has put over people's eyes. And if you don't know Christ as Savior, I, I just want to encourage you to let today be the day. Don't put it off any longer. Don't care about what anybody else thinks. Put your faith in Christ. It is not because you're a good person. It is not because you've been baptized. It's not because you give money or volunteer at the homeless shelter. If you have any hope of eternal salvation, it's because Christ paid the price. And he took away all your sins and he gave you all of his righteousness. Would you trust him right now to save you? Father in heaven, thank you so much for such a beautiful picture of the Last Supper. May our hearts always see it 
and appreciate it for what it really is, how Christ redeemed us with his outstretched arms. We thank you for the broken body and for the shed blood as our only hope of salvation. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. And if you made a decision to trust Christ today, man, I would love to talk to you. Here's my cell phone number. You can call me or text me at any time. All right, we're going to have a time of question and answer, and several questions have come in. Ashley, would you like to help me with that? And uh, if you're watching from home, you can text those questions in. Um, if we don't get to your question, maybe because um, you're not connected to the Wi-Fi, but feel free to uh, raise your hand if you don't see your question coming through. Here we go. Two questions. One, did Jesus announce that someone would betray him earlier in his ministry, or was this the first mention by Jesus? I know that some gospel authors foreshadowed it, but did Jesus talk about it? Hmm, that's a good question. I know that there's a psalm that talks about the betrayal, one who ate, at, ate with me and let another man take his office, and that's a prophecy of Judas. So the Old Testament prophesied that one would betray. Whether the disciples picked up on that or, or not, I don't know. And whether Jesus mentioned it or not previously, I don't remember that. Pastor Stan, do you remember Jesus referring to betrayer before this occasion? The disciples were so clueless about everything else, it would really surprise me. <laughs> they would have missed it anyway, they, right? <laughs> they got it. Maybe sure. later later on, maybe they connected that. Yes. Two, did the Pharisees and priests really need Judas to betray Jesus in order to arrest him? I believe so because they didn't know where he was. I don't Because Jesus was constantly hiding, you know, and um, just at least trying to be uh, avoid conflict until the time was right. And Jesus had a special place he went to pray. And Judas, being on the inner circle, knew where that place, not the innermost circle, but um, 12, knew where that would be. So they needed someone to do that. And also, I think, and this is my just my theory on this, I think that Judas was kind of like a scapegoat. So they could put it on him. that Well, he brought him to us, you know, not that they went out to find him, because that would make them look like weak on their part, possibly. But I think they needed help. But they did send a whole bunch of soldiers, a whole bunch of soldiers. And it's just like... It's like, it shows the hardness of their heart that they were prepared. That if he starts pulling out miracles, man, we need a whole bunch of so soldiers to overcome the miracle. You admit he, he's powerful, that you need you know, a whole legion of armies to arrest this one guy, and yet you will not repent and accept the miracles as proof of who he is. I think it's a good point that that was probably orchestrated somewhat beforehand, because otherwise they wouldn't have had time to arrange the false witnesses against Jesus to bring him in to testify against them, even though they couldn't agree. That's a great because, point. But they would have had to have had time to set all those up and to ask for those witnesses. No doubt. Good question. Good all right. observation, too. Uh, are we still waiting on the kingdom of heaven? Are believers in Christ not living in it now? And how do we know? So a, a common phrase that theologians will say is the kingdom that is now and not yet. So Jesus said the kingdom is within you, but he also talked about pray thy kingdom come. So it's both. So our king is on his throne. It's just a matter of time before he comes and takes what's his. So we currently exercise within the kingdom of God and we are obedient to our king. Our king. And I think even saying dual citizenship is generous. My citizenship is in heaven. My American citizenship, while I'm thankful for it, is extremely secondary <laughs> to that, okay? And so um, the kingdom is right now, and we pray 
He talks about the kingdom of God that is among you, the kingdom of God that's within you, and then the kingdom of God that's yet to come. So it's both. It's the now and the not yet. All right. I got one more. Uh, Have you heard about the Da Vinci painting of Jesus being the same guy as Judas? I have. I've heard that. And I don't know. I'm sure. There is a lot of things that Da Vinci had going on in there. And so the book, The Da Vinci Code, does uncover a lot of that, but it also makes up a lot of it, too. And yeah, The Da Vinci Code, the movie, is is a shame. I like Tom Hanks up until that point. I have a question that's not on here. Okay. Um, so Ezekiel versus Exodus. In Exodus, God says, I visit the iniquity, the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation mm-hmm. of those who hate me. And some other, um, in the Old Testament, the, in the Pentateuch, it talks about, it leaves off those who hate me. But in Ezekiel, it says, I hold every person accountable for their own sins. So how do those... That's Yeah, that's a great, because in Ezekiel, he talks about, should, should the fathers eat the grapes and the children's teeth be set on edge? You know how you eat a bitter grape? It's like, ugh, like that. How, you know... So the father do this and the son have to pay for it. And Ezekiel says, no, everybody pays for their own sins. Mm-hmm. So in Exodus, when it talks about sins being visited upon the second, third, fourth generation, it's saying that the sins we have visited upon them doesn't say they're being punished for it. One, Ezekiel's talking about punishment. The other one's experiencing it. So, for example, I, my McCullen ancestry, alcoholism runs rapid. It's in, it's in our DNA. That's why I'm just scared to death of alcohol. I don't want to touch it. I don't want anything to do with it because it seems like everybody in my family, they don't know what moderation is. They just, it's all or nothing. And some people, they say one out of every eight people has a genetic propensity towards alcoholism. That's why they can't, they need to totally abstain. And so, um, and what, where did they get that from? They got that from their ancestry. So you could have anger run in your family. And I don't believe, I think some, some people superstitious What's the word? What's the verb for that? I don't know. Some people may superstitiously talk about generational curses and they take it too far as in, like, you can't help yourself. No. And both Exodus and especially Ezekiel talk about it. But if that generation will repent, it's over. So if anger runs in your family, which I believe it could, you learned it. Not only is it nature, it's nurture. You learned that from your dad. Maybe you got it from genetically. You don't have to commit that sin and you don't have to pay for that sin. It just means. Certain sins run in certain families and in certain generations, but it doesn't mean you're being punished for it, which is what Ezekiel is saying, that you're not being punished. So not, not a contradiction, but good. Anybody else have a question? Yeah, I got one more. Ooh. Uh, the first past for Passover in Egypt, was it the firstborn child that was at risk or the firstborn son? And what if there were twins? Right. Um, firstborn everything, because even firstborn animals died. So I think, unless someone correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's firstborn anyone. So sex was not a Yeah, and I, I think I said life. firstborn son, but that, that was probably a slip of the tongue. So yeah, I'd say firstborn anyone. Patrick's question. Um, I'm celebrating So did the disciples eat lamb with Jesus uh, during his ministry or not? Yeah. I, my speculation would be yes on all of the above. There's no reason they would not have um, had Passover. I mean, because Jesus was a devout Jew, so he kept all the feasts and festivals. Now, and I believe he probably would have ate, ate the lamb. I think he waited till this Last Supper to, if if there was no lamb at the table, which again is my speculation, um, mm-hmm. then that would have been the time to do it. 
when Jesus resurrected, did he drink wine whenever he at, they asked? He was like, give me something to drink. Give me something to yeah, eat. Probably uh, not wine. Probably not wine. According to that verse, that's a great observation. At least not in that official sense. I won't drink this wine, the fourth cup. The Passover wine. The Passover wine. So it could have been wine, could have not been. But he definitely would not drink that cup, the fourth cup, the cup of consummation mm -hmm. until he comes in the kingdom. All right, cool. Any other questions? All right, let's stand and we'll sing a song on our way out.